my question to you, what's it take to become a Christian? How good do you have to be to be saved? I'm glad that made it quiet in here because it it needs to be something you chew on that you think about, that maybe you think about for yourself and think about for anybody you've ever, uh, pardon this crude expression, sold Jesus to. When I talk to somebody about Jesus, I'm not just talking. I want them to know the Jesus I love. So I'm I'm gonna tell them all the good things. I don't know of a bad thing. Many people I talk to, though, will have an answer that goes something like, well, I'm, I'm not sure how good you have to be, but I think I'm good enough. Okay, so the question's out there. By the way, those aren't new questions. You know that, right? If you've been here, you know that's true. It's, they're not new questions. But they rank among the most important, eternally important questions a person can possibly get answers to. There's a, here's the deal. I want to just ask you personally, and I'll do it throughout this message. Have you asked them those questions? What does it take to become a Christian? How good do you have to be to have a place in heaven? And, and here's my other question. Um, if, uh, if, if you've asked that question, have you received an answer? An, have you received an answer that's clear? And here's one more word, correct. Those are important things. Uh, and I ask it with passion on the front end here because a lot is writing on the right answer. That's why my Bible's open. I hope you join me if you haven't already in Acts chapter 15. We're continuing in a series. We're actually past the halfway point. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We've reverently uh, renamed it Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is Acts of the Apostles, what God used them to do and what God did through them, but it's also descriptive of what or rather who, weaves in and out of story after story, page after page, the Holy Spirit. So Acts of the Holy Spirit is what we've come to call it, and our title of this entire series is In Step with the Spirit. How can I walk in step, as Paul says in Galatians 5, with the Spirit? Our Bible study today comes out of chapter 15, um, and it will answer our question this morning. Uh, You may already have a clear answer. You may already have carefully searched for a truthful right answer. Or you may know someone who right now in your family, you work with them, a neighbor, they're they're searching this question out. They may not come to you and go, you know, I'm searching the question, how can I know Jesus personally? But you and I are wise enough to know that that's really the core question. That's that's the deal. That's, That's... Uh, Alan Redpath, a famed pastor of yesteryear, said, the conversion of the heart is the miracle of the moment. The making of a saint is the task of a lifetime. That's true. So we're talking here about, is your compass oriented correctly to Jesus? 
Um, so there's a development we're going to read right now in the first church. We've come to call the early church, as it's been referred to by theologians, the first church that clarified not only for those people, but for all people, the most sought after uh, answer to life's most important question. What, what does it take to be saved? So as, you, as you're in chapter 15, a couple of words. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have been like front and center, the focus of recent weeks that we've spent together. They've returned now to Grace Point, Antioch. <laughs> That's sometimes how I personalize things in the Bible. I'm like, well, they went to their home church, which was east, and it's called Antioch of Syria. I'm thinking, well, let's just call that Grace Point of Antioch, Syria. So they've gone. They've been on the road for actually 18 months. That's a long time away from home. How many have been missionaries? Okay. How many of you have been uh, gone for 18 months as a missionary? Okay, I see three, four. Okay, most of us are like, like summer missionaries, or we call them short-term missionaries, all legit, all good. But some people lay it all down, and they, they leave. They leave for a long period of time. 18 months is a really long time, whether you're in the military or you're in God's army. It's a long time away from home. Okay, so we join Paul and his fellow missionary, Barnabas, as they return home, and we join them as they're reporting some exciting details. You've got to back up two verses to chapter 14, verse 27. On arriving home, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Why? Because the people were saying, tell us more, tell us more. This is so cool. This is amazing. They're all vicarious questions. I wish I could have been there. I'm living through your stories. You know what I'm talking about? We all know that. It's why when a missionary comes home, they're exhausted from what they just did. And then hopefully their phone's ringing off the hook, which adds to more exhaustion. But it's people that want to go, tell me what happened in China. You were in that country we can't even talk about publicly. Uh, maybe not China, but another one. It's dangerous. You may not be able to go back if we do. But tell us what you know. That's what was happening here. And Paul and Barnabas, um, they, they, they bring a whole bunch to the sending church, which was Antioch of Syria. So in the report, they highlight how the Holy Spirit had opened the hearts. Did you see the word in, at, at the end of verse 27? They'll open the doors of faith to the Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people. And they're, they're the ones God sent these two to reach with the gospel. Whoa. So as they start this wonderful news, we pick up chapter 15, verse one, we pick up uh, in this celebration, uh, which was suddenly interrupted by a group of Pharisaic Judaizers. Uh, Pharisaic, just think, there's a lot more could be said on any of this, but think extremists, fundamentalists, 
hardline, unbending, um, uh, uh, by the letter of the law, religious people. Not just any, you can't just say generically religious. They were in love with and centered on the law of Moses. They were, they were card-carrying fundamentalists when it came. And even then, I'm, I'm, I'm off mark, so bear with me. Um, Judaizers were ones that were, had this Pharisaic flair, but they were actually kind of getting okay with Jesus, but insisting on what we're about to read. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, this, this home church for Paul and Barnabas, and they were teaching the believers. Notice quotations show up in the text now. Here's what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. These are people, this gathering, are hearing this really amazing report of 18 months. That Gentiles, non-Jews, are coming to Jesus. And suddenly in the middle of their report, there's this, um, this astounding, shocking uh, interruption. And it's not a surprise that um, this leads to a head-on collision with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 2 begins that way. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. It was on. Sharp dispute and debate, you can imagine where those words, what they represent. No way, sit down, you're out of line. It's back and forth kinds of stuff. It's, it's one that makes you like want to get away. It's like, wow, this is awful. And it highlights a deep disagreement from within the church between those that have come to Jesus and have no Jewish roots and those who are Jews who are trying to get okay with Jesus but have not for a moment left, uh, left, left behind or let go of their uh, passion for the law. Such a sharp disagreement that it was a very real threat to the first church's survival. It's about to blow up is what we're going to journey in today. So a decision in that moment, and I, we're not told who, we're just told the leaders did this. They made a decision that makes for really good leadership. In the moment, a hurricane is blowing and they are steady as a steer in a blizzard. They've got it figured out. They know what needs to happen. And we pick up on that um, as we're told about this decision. Verse 2 still. So Paul and Barnabas, in the midst of this sharp dispute and debate, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. By the way, when it says up to Jerusalem, you and I tend to think Seattle is up from here, right? We live in Portland. It's up. Well, um, what they mean there is Jerusalem was on a hill, Mount Zion, uh, the, the hill of God, the city of God. So they actually were going south from Antioch, over 100 miles north. They were coming south to Jerusalem, and that's why Luke reports that they went up 
to see the apostles in Jerusalem about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. So if you had a map, and we're working on that technology, but I hope you do maps. I just go crazy in maps. I love them. But uh, Syria is up north, and they're heading south to Jerusalem and up to, to, to the city. South, that's why up. I told you that. And then on the way, we're told by Luke, he says they went through Phoenicia. Uh, think Tyre, Sidon. Think present-day Lebanon up north. They're making their way south on the Mediterranean coast. And they go through Phoenicia and then a bit inland to Samaria. And they told how the Gentiles had been converted. So what they're doing on the way is more of what they did back at the mother church when they reported all the things that God had done. And this news, notice, made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. So Luke, Luke tells us I made a point already, and it's an important point. He tells us how they traveled south. And they go through uh, Phoenicia. It's a city we spent time in, in an earlier study, back in chapter 8. So you'll have to go back in time, verses 12 and 13, but a larger section there, chapter 8. And it's when there was a persecution breaking out, and we were told in Jerusalem, we were told that a man named Philip took off and headed north. And when he did, he came to this place called Samaria. And he shares the gospel with the people. And so many of them responded to the gospel that the apostles from the mother church in Jerusalem came up to check it out. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on these brand new believers. You can't make this stuff up. But then we're not done because they tell us that he went on from there. And it's not Philip, it's this time Peter. Remember when he went down to Joppa on the coast? And then he went up from there to Caesarea. And, um, and in Caesarea, he's told to meet a man who's full-blown Gentile. This is Peter that goes, ugh, at that time in his life about Gentiles. He was a true blue Jew. To the start to finish, he's the same Peter that met Jesus, failed badly, and was restored by Jesus. He's that Peter. And he goes to this city in Caesarea. It's right on the coast. We've, many of us that went on our Israel trip stood there, and we were like, whoa, take this in. This is just mind-blowing. And in Caesarea, he goes to a Roman Gentile leader named Cornelius. And he shares the gospel and the text tells us this was in a study in chapter 10 that the Holy Spirit, before he was done preaching the gospel, came upon the people. In both Samaria and in Caesarea, there's a phenomenon happening here. The gospel of Jesus' period is being shared, and right in front of people, the Holy Spirit supernaturally is descending upon the people saying, you're saved, you're sealed, I live now inside of you. Amen? All right, I'll catch my breath. It's a lot. That's a lot. Some of you are going, wow, pastor, that takes me back to chapter two. Yeah. Uh, what was that day? Pentecost. Yeah. 
And um, suddenly, as Jesus promised in Acts 1 verse 8, there was this shaking, thunderous sound like F-16s overhead, and, and no one missed it. When the Holy Spirit descended upon a Jewish gathering, And that day declared, wow, we are God's people and he lives among us. Indeed, he lives within us. Do you see the string? Jerusalem, Samaria, Acts 8, Caesarea, Acts 10. So Paul and Barnabas are heading south, capturing all that I just captured, only they did a much better job. They're telling these people, God is doing amazing things. He reminds them, Paul does, that that, um, this this God that did amazing in Acts 2, he didn't say it like that because there was no Bible at that time, but who did amazing back then, this God I walked with, he, he is the God that's changing Gentile lives as well. He then states, um, that the same soul cleansing happens in the hearts and lives of all who turn to Jesus. Watch this now, verse 5, and let's pick up there. Then some of the believers, they're now in Jerusalem, belonging to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Um, Can I clarify this? The Apostle Paul, who came along um, by now, but came along after Peter, and who traveled, he was a missionary, uh, traveled in this first trip to uh, churches that make up essentially the recipients of the letter that we have in our Bible later called Galatians. It's the Galatian region, region South Asia, uh, sort of, well, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Variety of churches along the way there. And uh, the Apostle Paul, as soon as they returned, and we're reading about that, uh, knew that there was some clarity that needed to happen because news had traveled that these people are floundering in their faith. In fact, some had gone so far as to begin to kind of cancel out the faith. Maybe go back to the old ways keeping the law, being circumcised, all those things to be saved. So I want you to hold your place here because we will come back in a second, but I want you to go to Galatians for just a sec and two quick chapters. So after Acts, Romans, then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you come to Galatians. I want you to see in chapter uh, 2 real quick. Let me just show you a couple of verses. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not Listen carefully, not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. We are Jews. We, we are Jews by birth, not, not Gentiles. But we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So he's, he's, he's making a big deal of this. And uh, because of the works of the law, no one, he sweep, it's a sweeping statement. When you have one of those, circle them. Because no one is 
justified by the works of the law. No one. Not Jews, not Gentiles. Flip across the page to verse 2 of chapter 3. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Did you become a Christian by working at it? Or by what you heard about Jesus and believing him? Are you so foolish after beginning the Christian life by means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish it by means of the flesh? I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up. Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, and hold on to his question because it's for all of us. I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And the next verse says, just like Abraham. People love, Jews love to say, we're sons of Abraham. Well, what, what made Abraham such a big deal? He kept the law? There wasn't a law. That came at Moses' time, long time later. How did Abraham hear those words? Uh, uh, he believed God and, re- and it was reckoned to him as righteous. How did that happen? Except he, he trusted God. The same way anybody is saved. So he's asking that question. Did you... Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Let me translate that a little bit. If you keep the law, you're really good, better than me for sure. You keep the law. Does that result in God saying, you know what? That's a worthy vessel I'm going to give him my spirit. I'm trying to put it in ridiculous terms. But we practice that sometimes. If I'm good enough, that person that I had you imagine earlier, that's a real person who says, I say, how do you know you're saved? Well, because I, I think I'm good enough. You know, I think I do. I, I'm, well, that's a works. It's believing if I'm good enough, God will put his spirit inside me, forgive my sins, and save me a place in heaven. The Bible is saying that's not true. Um, Asking it as a question. Did you get the spirit of God, find salvation, and have a promise of eternity in heaven because you kept the law or because of faith by believing what you heard? That's the question that this summit is about to decide. Verse 6, back in Acts. The apostles and elders, in response to the question of verse 4, to the statement of verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that at some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows 
the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. He's blowing circuits right now. He did not discriminate between Jews, us as Jews, Paul was a Jew, and them, Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor all of our ancestors in the past have been able to bear? And verse 11 is the strongest words in this whole passage. No, we believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are saved just as the Gentiles. Amen? Amen? That's the deal here. What does it take to be Christians? This is, by the way, a big debate. We're not told any more about their discussion, but verse 7 says it was lengthy. So I'm trying to capture something that was very involved. Back and forth. Yeah, Paul, wait a minute. Hold up, hold up. Or in this case, Peter. Step off, step off. Um, and I, I love this. Um, Peter's response is, um, is really not his own response at all. He makes a, a cl- pretty clear point that this is God's response. This is, this is how God views this question. And... Um, So retracing his steps, we've already done that, and he heard those words long ago, what God has declared to be clean, no longer consider unholy. That wasn't about food. It was an illustration about folks, people. Just because Jews thought Gentiles were dirty uh, didn't make them dirty. And it changed Peter. And he reminds them that God gave the same spirit to them, to the Gentiles, as he gave to the Jews. Same deal. And what was the sign of that? What was the gift? It was the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what verse 8 is saying? He then states that the same, uh, this is going to take you back maybe, some of you recently, some a long time ago. What happened to me when I invited Jesus into my life? It's a, It's a soul cleansing. That's what happened to you. It's where your heart is changed, verse 8, um, or verse 9. And it it raises an obvious question that he asks. um, why, Why is it that we know the truth here, but we're willing to, like, lay a heavy burden on others that we can't even keep ourselves? What is our problem here? Peter is asking. What does it take to be a Christian is answered in verse 11. We believe it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved. Um, earlier I, I was taken by the song that we sang that talked about um, how uh, God saves people. And it's the song Amazing Grace that we all know by heart. It's kind of America's song, right? right? I mean, it's kind of a spiritual song we sing. It is so full of deep truth. And you know what? The best, best story of that in, that I've ever found, and that's why I share it so often when I'm in counseling with somebody whose life is, um, is broken, and they've, they've, 
They, they are convinced this will work in most cases, this thing we're talking about. How can someone be saved? By believing only. And uh, Jesus, period. They are convinced that their sin is too great. And I take them to 1 Timothy 1. It's not my words. You don't have to turn there. But it's uh, Paul telling Timothy uh, about nine years later, eight years later, his parting words to Timothy, in fact. He only sends two letters to him, and then he goes home to glory. And he says to Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement I'm about to tell you that should be accepted by all. When you hear a word like that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, you take it to heart because you're intended in those words. It's a, it's, it's a trustworthy statement. It deserves acceptance by everyone, and here's the word. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds this, in case you're going, eh, here's my pushback. Bro, you have no idea where I have been. Then Paul says, among whom I am the worst. I am the, he says it in one translation, the chief sinner. I'm, I'm the worst sinner. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, he repeats himself, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. And he did that as an example to anybody else, including the one sitting in my office often, or who I'm sharing with and they're waving me off going, now, worse than you know, dude. I'm going, well, I don't know. The Bible actually says Paul was the worst. So I, I agree with you. You know, you're, you're, you, you did wrong, whatever. You're, you, it's not good. But he takes that prize. And he says, um, he says, God's salvation came to me. So my question to you today is, have you believed in Christ, received his free salvation? For your soul, as dirty as it was when you met him. Uh, it's not Jesus and people. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus period. That's why my title. When Peter proclaimed um, the towering truth of verse 11... You could almost hear a pin drop. That's why verse 12 just, it's often missed because we're coming up to James next time we're together and he has some more things to say. But look at verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Whoa. Uh, it was last Monday when I sat in my office quietly. I, I kind of pushed back from the text and I was pondering, what, contemplating really, what is this text talking about? It happened to be, if you know your calendar, um, I don't know when you'll hear this message, but it was last Monday, which was October 31st. A, um, it's, it, my, my mind went back to something, but when you think of October 31st, what do you think of? 
Halloween, right? That's good. Well, you have to go further back to where my mind landed. 505 years ago is where it landed. I remember the day well. No, I've just read about it. But um, it was um, the sound of a hammer in a German city called Wittenberg. And there's a church there, Castle Church, it's come to be known. And at that church on the door, the sound of this hammer by a monk named Martin Luther, pounding what became known and is known today as 95 theses. They're points of disagreement with the church, the Roman Catholic Church, to be specific. Why do I pick on them? I'm not. It was the only church. That was them. 95 theses. And um, it was uh, a result for Luther of a tipping point for him. You might call it a slow burn, but it exploded that day. And the tipping point for him was the Pope's papal, they called it, attempt to sell salvation. I know that sounds harsh. Bear with me. I have never once picked on another religion. I'm not that guy. I just want you to know about Jesus. The rest will figure it out. does no good to pick on anybody. But here's the deal. Um, this selling of indulgences, it was known as, uh, selling of salvation, uh, kind of boiled down to the bigger your sin, the bigger the check you need to write. You see where it goes. And it blew his circuits. He was just tipped over. To say this thesis uh, created a stir would be the greatest understatement I could ever make from this pulpit. It was more like a nuclear detonation. Keep in mind, there isn't First Baptist down the road or the Nazarene church down that road and the Episcopal church or whatever. No, there was a church. And I bring this up to you because the Bible is compellingly clear that salvation is offered to all through Jesus, period. As our study today, I think, powerfully shows. Yet in a relatively short amount of time, it was in 1517 when all this went down. That's a pretty short amount of time, actually, when you think of the big picture. Uh, the church had drifted so far from Scripture that they were selling pardons or forgiveness for sin. Um, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is emphatically a case of Jesus plus. Okay, you with me? To be fair, and I want to be really clear about this, because some of you have come from a Catholic uh, experience, and um, the, the practice that I've described, the selling of indulgences, um, was eventually um, condemned completely and abolished. But 
And that was by uh, a Pope uh, Pius V in 15, about 60. So about 50 years later, it was condemned. Yet, hear me clear, penance is still not only practiced, but encouraged today. You say, what is penance? It's, you blew it big, here's a way to show that you're sorry and forgiven. So there's a variety of ways to do that. Do good works. Do, uh, uh, you, can, you can make an offering. You can uh, practice self-denial. You can do uh, sacrifices of some kind. See the trouble with that? I know it's intended well. Now, back to the text. I bring all this up today at the end because there's a better way. That's what I'm saying. That's what the Bible's saying. It's purely a Jesus way. There has has been a tendency among Christians to complicate the gospel from the beginning. You know where it comes from? We don't have time to go there, but it comes from Genesis when the devil said, you sure you got that right? Remember, read Genesis chapter 3. You'll remind yourself twice there. For real? You're going to die for eating fruit? Come on. I've been doing it ever since. Um, creating a Jesus plus gospel. Because your temptation after you leave here is to go, yeah, yeah, I get forgiveness. I'm so glad of what Jesus did. We're going to share communion in a minute. But I got to, I got to finish the sentence. Finish the sentence. Surrender might be an okay word. Embrace might be. Pray, good word. But if any of that adds to what Jesus Christ did on a cross... And I ask this question as a follow-up. Why did he have to die if it was almost good enough? Um, One theologian said justification. We read that three times in Galatians this morning. Justification, which is God declaring that we are not guilty, that we are forgiven of sin and righteous in his sight because of faith alone in Jesus um, is what makes us righteous, period. I I know, though, there's still a temptation. Paul wrote about it in Galatians. Paul wrote about it many years later to a church that was still practicing that very thing. The Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul said, I'm afraid for you. That in the same way the serpent seduced Eve, you too should be led astray from, listen, from the simplicity and purity. Would you, would you say those words right now? Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's it. Paul said, I'm afraid for you. Why would he say that? Because people were doing it. They were complicating it. They were mixing in and adding to. And he says, no, it's the gospel. Jesus, 
period. I'd like you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to, right now, stare at the words simplicity and purity in your mind. Take those words in and don't complicate them. Don't even try to add definition to them. Just hold on to them. Simplicity and purity. My question is, do those words this morning define your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do they define your heart? That's where this thing is. Do they define the way you live your life? Simple and pure, devoted to Jesus.